0: We are continuing today in our series that we've called Story Time. And I'm a little reluctant to use that term story because you might think that that means it's a myth, it's mythical, that it's made up, but it's not. These are true events, episodes, and accounts from the Bible, in particular the Old Testament. Last year, Ricky Sanchez, our missionary to Thailand, was here at uh, before he was sick, his plan was to stay in our series and work that in, but with his time in the hospital, he was not able to get that together. And I was really struggling this week. Do I skip last week's, which was about Josh, or do we talk this week's about Gideon? And I just thought, man, I, I can't decide, so we're gonna do both. And thus the extra five minutes, or ten. Let me just bring you up to speed where we've been so far. We started this series at the very beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter one, where we learned that in the beginning, God created everything. God created all things, including everything that you see and experience, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and especially you and me created humankind. And God said, go for it. Fill the earth. Take care of it. Manage it. But we didn't do very well. We didn't do very well. And in fact, people became very corrupt and evil and God decided to kind of hit the reset button. And in His mercy, He sent... Really, we talked about that. It's a merciful act that God sent a great flood over the earth. But He, he, he rescued one family, the family of Noah. And uh, all living... Everybody except that those animals that Noah had taken onto the ark were wiped out. Noah and his family kind of started fresh. And uh, as time went by, as the earth uh, filled again, we eventually got to meet a man named Abraham. And Abraham was a man kind of there in the Middle East. And God spoke to him and said, I'm going to to make a promise to you. You're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants, you won't even be able to count them all. Like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the beach. And so that's exactly what happened. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob has two names. Jacob was renamed Israel. And so he means wrestles with God. And so Jacob, or Israel, his 12 sons, became what we would call the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 is a man named Joseph. He's the second last, second youngest son. And because of Joseph, who had been dastardly sold into slavery, trafficked into slavery by his older brothers, he was, he was in Egypt. In fact, he was in prison in Egypt. But through a miraculous set of circumstances, God raised Joseph from the prison to the palace he became the prime minister of Egypt second most powerful man in the world and there was a great famine and and people needed food and they came to Egypt for food including Joseph's family they were reunited they settled there and as they settled in that land they flourished and grew and multiplied in this became a great nation there were a period of 430 years they they became at least 2 million people probably more and Yet the Pharaoh had found a way to enslave those Israelite people. They were captives in Egypt. And finally they cried out and they were crying out to God as limited in their understanding of Him as they were. And God sent a deliverer. Not an escape artist, a deliverer. And that man's name was Moses. And Moses gathered these people and delivered them, led by God's hand, led them out of Egypt to a place called Sinai where they received the laws of God. And they were headed for the promised land. What's today kind of that area we call Israel. They were headed there. And as they got close, um, Moses sent 12 spies into that land. And 10 of them came back and said, yeah, it's a great place, but we can't do it. It's too scary. It's too hard. Yeah, there's a little song that says, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and 2 were good. That's how it goes. That's how you remember that. And... uh, And so sure enough, and so God said, fine, you're going to wander in this wilderness for 40 years while this entire generation dies off. And that's exactly what happened. I want to show you a little map uh, here that kind of summarizes all of that. So that red line kind of shows their journey first down. The first short part of the journey was all the way down to the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula where they at it's kind of a traditional location. Don't know exactly where they would have received the laws of God and then back up. And as they got close, they got all the way up and they, they got scared and God caused them to be in a holding pattern for 40 years. That red star at the very top, that's Jericho. And that's where we're going to get to today. Maybe another way to understand Israel's development so far. I want to show you another thing. Uh, Think about it this way. You've got the founding of Israel, and that's really Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and his sons, including Joseph. That's kind of the establishment of this people, this nation known as Israel. We also call them the Hebrews. Then Egypt. That's, That's dominated, but that's known about slavery. There's really no leader in that time, no spiritual leader. They were slaves in Egypt, but they grew as a nation. And then along comes Moses and he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, but includes the time of wandering in the wilderness. Forty years of going in circles, wasted time because they were rebellious. They rejected God. How many of us have experienced wasted time because we didn't want to listen to what God was telling us? And then finally, along comes a guy named Joshua and he leads them what we would call the conquest, actually crossing over the Jordan River and into that promised land that is what we would call Israel today. And then finally, there's a, following that period is what we would call a tribal period where and that's you can read about that in the book of Judges. And they were ruled by a series of judges and it's much more a collection of tribes than it really is a nation. Following that is the monarchy and so on. But that's where we get to today. And we're going to look at two big events and two big leaders in those two bottom episodes. They really represent the conquest and the tribal periods for Israel. One of these episodes is the fall of Jericho, the city of Jericho. And that was led by Joshua as these Israelites began to kind of take on their promised land. And the other is the defeat of the Canaanites. That's the kind of people who lived in that whole region. Actually, those that particular brand of Canaanites were called the Midianites. And they were under the leadership. The Israelites were at that time were under the leadership of Gideon. So we've got Gideon and we've got Joshua. And to cover these stories, we're going to be in two Parts of the Bible, and um, um, we're going to start in Joshua chapter 6. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 6. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to find that. You can remain seated today for this, as we'll be in here for a while, and we'll kind of bounce around a little bit. But Joshua chapter 6, if you have a Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, book number 6, and then we'll be in book number 7, Judges. Chapter six starts this way. Now, the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go in or out. So what you have is you've got this city of Jericho. They can see this massive group of Israelites out there and they're scared and they're watching and they're wondering what's going to happen. Verse two. But the Lord said to Joshua, "I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark. That's the, the ark was the box that held the sacred objects and represented their place of worship. Each carrying a ram's." horns. And on the seventh day, you were to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Have you ever been in a place where you shouted as loud as you can? Maybe a ball game or maybe at the ocean you're trying to get hold of your kids that are out in the waves and they can't hear you. And you're like, hey, hey. Right. Imagine you've got like hundreds of thousands of people shouting as loud as they can. I said, be a terrifyingly loud sound. I lost my spot. Verse five, shout as loud as they can, and then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Verse six. So Joshua called together the priests and said, take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. And they gave orders to the people. Now, march around the town and the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. Now After Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horn started marching in the presence of the Lord, blowing the horns as they marched and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed behind them. Some of the armed men marched in front of the priests with the horns and some behind the ark with the priests continually blowing the horns. There's a nice little picture there about the value of protecting those who lead us in worship. Soldiers before, soldiers after, as they blow those trumpets, those horns. Verse 10 says, Do not shout, do not even talk, Joshua commanded, not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout. Then shout! Then shout! And so the ark of the Lord was carried around the town once that day. And then everyone returned to spend the night in the camp. While they go back to the camp, the next morning they wake up. Joshua says, let's go. We're going to do it again. He gathers all the people the same thing and they go around the town and then they do that again the third day and the fourth day, the fifth day, six days they do this. And then finally you get to verse 15. It says on the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time they went around seven times. So seven times on the seventh day led by seven trumpets. And on that seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. And Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you'll bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. In verse 20 says, When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could, and suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with swords, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. Some of that stuff, that destruction part, is a little bit hard for us to wrap our heads around and understand why that would have to happen. We'll have to come back to that. Some time, So that is the story of Joshua and the, um, you know, the collapse of Jericho. Now, I want you to fast forward in time with me about 230 years, about 230 years. And we're now in the time of the judges. The people of Israel have settled in their land. They've partitioned up their areas. Some have been more effective than others. But they are this collection of tribes and really not very unified as a nation. And they have largely abandoned faithful worship. They've turned to idols. They've turned to pagan gods. And as a result, God has allowed them to experience oppression. From the people around them, surrounding nations, in particular the Midianites in this case. In fact, the, the harassment from the Midianites had impoverished them. The Bible says it was like locusts coming through. They wait till harvest time and then they come and take all the crops. They take all the livestock. And it was just a, just a devastating time. Never able to get kind of ahead. Always being struck down by these um, Midianite raiders. And the people finally, what did they finally do? They finally cried out to God. We need help. God, come to our rescue. And so God sends them some help. First a prophet, and then a special man named Gideon. I want you to go one book over with me. If you were in Joshua, now you're in Judges. But still in the same chapter. Remember when you're in the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and small numbers are the verses. So Judges, chapter 6, starting all the way at verse 11. Judges, chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, just imagine that scene. He's in down inside a a winepress. It's a a lowered place where they would have. You know, trample all the grapes with bare feet, you know, right? All squishy, and then it, it runs out the side. That's, that's kind of what he's in. And he's down inside there. Just think of Wilson from Home Improvement, those of you who are old enough to remember that show, right? He's looking up, right? Watching to make sure you no know, Midianites are coming. They're going to kind of take his, the wheat that he's just harvested and he's threshing away. So he's working down there, right? And suddenly this angel says, Mighty hero, huh? The Lord is with you. Verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Not Mennonites, Midianites. Verse 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Now Gideon's not too sure about this, and so he kind of makes a bit of a deal with this angel or this visitor, whoever he is. He says, wait here, I'll go get some food. So he brings back some food, and that food becomes an offering to God. And he suddenly realizes I've seen the face of God. I'm going to die. The angel says, no, no, you are going to, you're going to lead these people and you're going to conquer the Midianites. You're going to utterly destroy them. So, um, so Gideon kind of responds and agrees that he's going to do this. Now, that night, something really important happens. He has a, he has a dream or a vision and he, he, uh, he's told, the Lord tells him to destroy his father's idols. You see, Gideon's family did not worship the true God. The Gideon's family worshiped the Baals, the false gods. And so he gets some of his men of his household together and they tear down the family altars, the family worship station. And they wake up in the morning and this is gone. And there's a bit of a panic in the house. And Gideon's father thankfully comes to his defense, comes to his rescue and says, no, that's my son. He's he's okay. Don't. Don't harm him. In fact, goes on to say, look, if this is such a bad thing, let Baal defend himself. Let the gods defend themselves. And so in that moment, Gideon has sort of established his zeal for the Lord. He's established himself as a leader, as somebody willing to stand up against the status quo, stand up even against his family and do the right thing. And so Gideon then calls all the people out, calls all the troops out, calls calls for the army. But he has a he has a moment, sort of like, you know, like buyer's remorse. Anybody ever suffer buyer's remorse? You buy something, you're like, oh, should I have really done that? Oh, did I really buy the right thing? Oh, man, I bet you I could have got a better price if I'd gone over to Best Buy. instead of, You know, you're like, wrestling with that buyer. Should I really get the right car? Maybe I should have done that differently. So he's obeyed, but he's like, oh, he's got a moment of pause. And so um, he he asks God for a sign. For some assurance that he's doing the right thing. Verse 36, chapter 636 says, Then Gideon said to God, If you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And That's just what happened when Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowl full of water. He wanted a little more assurance, so he asked God for one more miracle. God, will you just do that, but do it in reverse? I just really want to know that I'm doing the right thing. And that's exactly what happened. And then we move right all the way to chapter 7, and it says, so Jeroboam, that is Gideon, Jeroboam is sort of his kind of street name, and his army got up early. Yeah, like... Whatever. Um, And went as far as the spring of Herod. And the armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you, all of you, fight the Midianites, the Israelites will uh, uh, boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain And go home. So twenty two thousand of them went home, leaving only ten thousand who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, There are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. Verse five says, When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, God told the Lord told him, Divide the men into two groups. In one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it with their tongues like dogs. (laughs) Right? In the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. And only 300 of the men drank from their hands. And all the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. And the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home but he kept the 300 with him. It's such an odd way to determine. But you know it's it's further proof of this thing. It's they couldn't say, "Well, we had our 300 best," or "we had our 300 most experienced." You know, it's like, you know, like Lord of the Rings or or The Hobbit where you know you've got these 12 guys that can defeat all the orcs or something like that. These are like, "No, you don't have your 12 best. You have 300 random men from the army. And those are the 300 that you're going to take with you into battle." And we'll move all the way to me with me to verse nineteen. Because at that point, um Gideon is is ready to go. He gets a bit scared. He wants assurance one more time, and God says, Look, I'm gonna assure you of this. He says, Go down to the go down to this is midnight, it's nighttime, and it's he's they're ready to go. He says, Go down to the Midianite camp, and I want you to just listen in what's going on. And so he's he listens and he overhears two of the Midianite soldiers having a conversation. One of them's had a dream about their defeat by, at the sword of Gideon. And they're like, man, we are done for. We're in trouble. Well, Gideon hears that. and He's like, that's all I needed to hear. Verse 19 of chapter 7 says this. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. And suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. What I didn't tell you was they each had a torch with a jar over it to mute the light. And so they were going discreetly down. And they had a trumpet in the other hand. And he says, um, break the, the jars. And they all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. And then they held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hand. And they all shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each man stood his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. And when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to faraway places. And verse 23 says, Then Gideon sent for the warriors of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, those are other tribes, who joined in chasing the army of Midian. And Gideon also sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down to attack the Midianites. Cut them off at the shallow crossings of the Jordan River at Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim did as they were told. All right, so now we've covered these two big episodes in the Old Testament, about 230 years apart. What do these two leaders really have in common because they are different. Joshua, Joshua had been Moses' apprentice for 40 years. Did you know that Joshua was the one to lead of the first military campaign shortly after they came out of Egypt? Before they even got to sign it um, Joshua was leading the army, and he was with Moses for 40 years. He had been he'd been in some of the most intense spiritual moments with Moses. He'd been up on the mountain with Moses. He'd, he'd basically experienced the presence of God the same way Moses had. He was one of those 12 spies that I told you about that Moses had sent into Canaan, in that promised land, to check it out. Ten of those spies panicked, but not, not Joshua nor his friend Caleb. Now Gideon, on the other hand, Gideon came up very differently. He was from a minor family in a minor clan. His father's household worshipped the pagan fertility god known as Baal. Baal is a bit of a generic term, a Canaanite term for Lord, but it also referred to uh, one particular God. Gideon lived in a time of great discouragement, corruption, political upheaval and failure. Unlike Joshua, Gideon was called by God without any obvious reason why. Completely out of left field. Some of you think, well, you know, I grew up in a good family. I, I suppose I've got more opportunities Some of you grew up in a home where you didn't have a leg up at all, spiritually speaking or otherwise. And God has taken these two men from those kinds of different families. One good godly upbringing, one Baal-worshipping family. and He calls them both. There's no excuse. Your upbringing is no excuse or, or benefit when it comes to being called by God. So what do they have in common? They both obey God. And they both gave leadership. Now, anyone can be convinced to lead. I told the first service, this is uh, how I ended up coaching six-year-olds in soccer. You can twist someone's arm. You know, if, we don't, if you don't do this six-year-old soccer team, we won't have a team. So that's how you have me trying to figure out how to coach six-year-olds. Fun. <laughs> a lot of running around. Um. A lot of stopping kids from picking their nose when they should be chasing the ball. A lot of that. No. Anybody can be convinced to leave. These men did a lot more than lead. They had accepted remarkably unusual and unlikely assignments that God had given to them. And in case you're wondering, these are just thinking that this is just made up impossible Bible stories. Let me just remind you this. Archaeology at the ancient Jericho site confirms these events. Evidence shows that these walls fell not inward as would be typical in the battle, but they fell down and out. So that, as it says in verse 6 and verse 20, the Israelite soldiers could run straight into the city. It was on a bit of a hill. These walls fell and it's like a ramp it takes them right in. We also uh, know that there was a great of uh, tells about a great fire here. There's evidence of a layer of burnt, um, uh, a big, big fire at that time. Uh, archaeology says that the north wall did not fall. And that may very well have been where the home of Rahab, the prostitute, was. Now, Rahab, when Joshua, and we're going to read this later, Joshua t- sent two spies into the city and they went into this home of Rahab and her house was on the wall and she gave them shelter and she saved their lives and made them promise to save her life and the life of her family. and uh, in the, And it's exactly what happened. But there's one wall that didn't fall. We think that's probably where Rahab's home was situated. So, archaeology backs all this up. Dating of the site. Places it around 1400 BC, which is exactly when this would have happened. So, don't start thinking these are just made up stories. These really happened. But the assignments themselves are ridiculous. Think about this. March around the city for seven days. Which is also an interesting violation of the Sabbath, that on the seventh day you would walk seven times around the city, blowing trumpets, say quiet, and then at the right moment, shout and everything's going to collapse. That is a crazy assignment. Or or Gideon with his 300 men and their 300 trumpets. They've got a picture of of maybe what they might have looked like, something like this, uh, what they call a shofar horn. Sometimes they're longer. But they they would, you know, blow those trumpets. In fact, in the military situation, that's like for giving um commands and instructions. And so you would have, you know, a shofar horn for the leader of of each um each unit, right, of the military. And so it could be that when they hear those three hundred horns going off, they're thinking, Oh, that's a big army out there. That's a big army. All this loud cacophony of sound. But re- seriously, this is crazy stuff. These are ridiculous. Assignments, And I wonder if you could do that. Or I wonder even if, if if you or I would do anything outside of what is sensible, logical, affordable, comfortable. Even as a church, do we only do things that make sense? That we can afford? That are predictable? That are safe? If you're following in your outline today, this would be your first point there. Are we or are you engaged in anything requiring faith? Think about your life right now. Are you doing anything that requires faith? Is there anything in your life that says, man, if God does not come through, we're not going to make it. Is there anything in your life requiring faith? Back in in February, uh, Stephen and Janice and I and our spouses attended the Dream Conference in Los Angeles. And you may have heard of the L.A. Dream Center. It's the former Queen of Angels Hospital that a couple of ordinary guys, Tommy Barnett and his son, Matthew Barnett, felt like the Lord led them to purchase this building. Matthew, they're both pastors, and uh, Matthew had recently restarted a church nearby. They did not have the millions of dollars needed to buy this place and refurbish it, but they felt God called them, and they did it anyway. Today, there's something like 900 people that are housed in there for... Uh, you know, addiction recovery and a homelessness shelter and trafficking rescue and family restoration and emancipated foster kids and so on and so on. It's unbelievable. It's super inspiring. But it takes $800,000 a month to keep this place operating. Let me just say, we, we don't actually have the money for this. We just trust the Lord. He just continues to provide. It's pretty awesome and inspiring to see what God's done for the lost and the least through the obedience. A couple of ordinary people, people just like you, About 75 years ago, a small group of believers from Reedley Mennonite Brethren Church started a Bible study in Fresno when it became Bethany Church. About 30 years ago, this very building was under construction after some deliberation and delays, but there were some folks from Bethany Church who said, we need a a bigger facility where we can grow. And through the hard work, volunteer work, and the generosity of some people in this room today, we now have a great place to gather and worship together. Later this month, our friend Sarah Stambach is going to be leaving for Turkey for a first of two journeys there, trusting God to supply all her needs and make that trip. Last week, Ricky Sanchez was here sharing the impossible story of building an orphanage in Thailand that has become the Abundant Life Homes, rescuing HIV positive kids and giving them a life to live. Over and over, we could just tell many more stories of impossible tasks that God laid on someone's heart. But as they were obedient and faithful, God came through. My question is, what's next for you and for our church? What, What walls are we called to march around? What trumpets are we, or what trumpets are you called to blow in your life? What battle are you called to engage? What victory is yours to accomplish? What mission is yours to pursue? What check are you being asked to write? What, what church shall we plant? To what country is the Lord going to send you or your children or your grandchildren? What, what are we doing that requires faith? You'll notice in Joshua and in Gideon's cases, their faith responses were pretty different, right? Joshua, he needed no convincing. He was just on it right away. Gideon... Even though he obeyed, he had his doubts. He had that sort of buyer's remorse. But he was not looking for an excuse. He was looking for confirmation. Now, I want you to understand, it's not a sin to ask for some confirmation. This idea of we, 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 the vernacular, as we say, putting out a fleece. You ever heard that term? Putting out a fleece? It comes from this story in the Bible. Putting out a fleece. Am I really doing the right thing? He wasn't looking for an excuse not to do it. He was looking for confirmation that he should do it. He had faith. He just wanted some confirmation. And once they made that decision, once they got to that place, there was no stopping them. Church, seriously, what faith ventures are we being called to? Part of what motivated these two great leaders is they understood their mission, but they also understood their enemy and in Joshua's case, we are not told exactly who lived in Jericho, but it would be a typical city. You'd have a collection of, of people, in this case Canaanites, who were there for commerce and protection and you know, trade and so on. It was an important, highly fortified city. It was located at a key entry point just on the west side of the Jordan River, a key entry point for that whole region, that whole territory. Joshua... Needed to find out what was really going on in there. So if you go back to, in fact, we got this on the screen. If you go back to Joshua chapter two, verse one, it says this, Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove, Shatim. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. Joshua wanted to know the enemy. What are we dealing with here? When we met Gideon, he was down in that wine press, right, threshing grain. Hiding from the Midianites, he knew full well what he was up against. They were devastating the life of, of his whole nation and their economy and everything. But even then, right before the battle, like I mentioned, he did a little more research. He snuck down to the edge of the Midianite camp and overheard those guys who were talking about how scared they were of what was to come. He did his research. He wanted to know who the enemy was. If you're going to step in out in faith, you going to step out in faith, You need to know your enemy. It's your second point in your outline. Who or what is your enemy? Who's your enemy? See, the reason the pagan nations around Israel were such a problem, what really made them enemies was not their violent hostility, as bad as that was. The problem was that they repeatedly drew the Israelites into pagan worship. Now, pagan worship included sacrifices to idols, sexual license, sexual immorality, prostitution, human sacrifices... All of which, of course, are an affront and an insult to God Almighty. So an enemy is anything that leads you and leads us away from God. Anything that is an an idol in our lives, anything that we set up as more precious than God, that's an enemy. Anything Anything that diminishes your ability to worship God or forces you into being a hypocrite, that's your enemy. See it for what it is. Deal with it seriously. My question is, do you know your enemy? Is it an addiction? Is it a habit? Is it laziness or procrastination? Is it a relationship that leads you away from godliness? Is it the love of money? Whatever it is that would lead you away from being able to worship God wholeheartedly and with a clean conscience, that's your enemy. And you need to identify that in your life if you're going to grow and mature. Now, so we have Joshua, we've got Gideon. They're willing to obey in faith. They understand their enemy. But Joshua had never heard of marching around a city, blowing trumpets and seeing it collapse. Gideon had never seen an army of 300 trumpet blowers defeat a vast horde. Yet they obeyed. But here's what's more amazing than their obedience, to me anyway. They never used these methods again. They resisted the temptation to say, man, marching around Jericho and seeing those walls, well, that was awesome! That is the thing. That is... I'm going to write a book, says Joshua, how to make walls collapse. You march around for seven days. You blow trumpets. I'm going to go on a speaking tour. I'm going to do a video series. We'll have a you know, study on how to march around the walls. Right? Gideon... He he never he never said, man, blown those trumpets and seen everybody's panic and scramble like that and slaughter each other. Oh, that was the best. That is the way to win every battle. You know what? They never used any either of those methods again. At least, no, not that it's recorded. They were only done once. So, in st- they they were able to march to new orders. Making these commands, get this, neither tradition nor doctrine. They didn't make a doctrine out of these things. They didn't make a tradition out of these things. And that's the challenge for us, too, as individuals and as a church. Are you willing, third point in your outline, are you willing to march to new orders? Are you willing to march to new orders? See, what if God has some opportunities for us? Now, let's think about as individuals, but also as a church, some opportunities that are not The way we've always done it. I know I'm poking a sacred cow right now, but that's okay. They say sacred cows make gourmet burgers. So (laughs) think about it like this. We know that the New Testament church met for worship, for prayer, for teaching, for fellowship, which includes food, which is fantastic, right? We know they scattered about the world proclaiming the gospel. They were meeting publicly like this and in homes like in our connection groups. Right, We know they healed the sick. They cast out demons. They baptized new believers. They gave generously to help those in need. And they sent some people out specifically on mission. But there's no record in the Bible of a youth group or an Iwana program or a choir or a worship team or a softball team or Sunday school or even VBS. No PowerPoint or video ministry or church websites. No Christian concerts and no Christian camps. It's not in there. Now, I love all those things. I love all those things. And God has used all those things in many ways to be fruitful at many various times. But let's not get so set on any one program or method or technology that we make those programs the end goal. They simply serve a purpose. Here at Bethany, we've said that our purpose is to make Christ Jesus known in our communities and beyond. And beyond. Our mission is to help our neighbors, friends and family find their way into the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and follow him together. That's what we're about. There's any number of ways to accomplish that. Maybe, maybe God might say, I have a fresh way for you to do some of these things. Maybe it's time we plant a church or hold a sports camp outreach or Build a dog park for the neighborhood. Or who knows? You've got more ideas than I do. It might even be something highly unusual, like marching around the city seven times. You're blowing 300 trumpets, but not exactly those, because those are done. What will it be? And in your own life, once you've identified the enemy that leads you away from following Jesus, what bold step are you willing to take to march to new orders? Is it a 12-step group, Celebrate Recovery? Yeah. Is it time you joined or, or started a connection group? Come to a prayer meeting? Is it, is it gathering with some people in your community? Maybe it's time you supported a missionary or, or, or put on your own backpack to go somewhere and serve the Lord wherever that may be. If God gave you a, a new and even a strange, unexpected marching order, would you do it? Could you do it? there's one takeaway for me from the lives of Joshua and Gideon, it's that faith is meant to take action. A couple of months ago when we talked about Noah, I remember we said faith swings a hammer. Faith is meant to take action. It might be simple and routine. It might be as simple as getting up this morning and getting here. That was an act of faith on your part, that it mattered that you would come today, that God had a place for you to be here today. That was an act of faith that you came Or it might be something unusual and risky and potentially cost you everything. I just wonder, I just wonder what God might be leading you or leading us into today. And of course, few of us feel capable or ready. But the key verse might be this in Judges chapter 6, verse 14. When the angel said to Gideon, The Lord turned to Gideon and said, go with the strength you have. For I am sending you. Where's the Lord sending you? Let's pray. God, I love these guys. I love them. I I love Joshua, Lord. He just had every chance to be just right on with you. And I love Gideon, Lord. He... He didn't have any opportunities or advantages, and yet he followed you too. I just love these guys. And Lord, I, I don't want this just to be something we look back on in and, and nice ancient stories. I don't, I don't want history to be just a nice thing to talk about. God, can you make these things alive for us today? Lord, I'm thankful for the many good things you've been able to do in my life and in the life of our church. But, God, we don't want to just glory and things of the past, God, we want You to lead us into whatever You would have for us next. God, we want to have faith and we want to take action on the faith. We want to hear You speak. We want to hear Your orders, even if they're unusual, and move forward in those things. You're as alive today, God, as You were back then. And so You can speak as powerfully now as You did today. God, I asked that even this week You would be stirring in our own lives those places to Move to action, Lord, those places where it takes faith to do what you're calling us to do. Identify the enemy, Lord, and then launch out with new orders. God, would you give it to us this week and these days? And church, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we do this every week, but I, I I cannot let you go without giving you this opportunity. If you would like to give your life to Jesus today, if you're saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, I want to know what it means to be forgiven of my sin and have a new start with him. I'd love to give you that opportunity. It's called Becoming a Christian. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus today, I would ask you just give me a little wave while everybody's looking down. I won't embarrass you. And we can pray together after the service. For the rest of us, would you be asking God this week, Lord, is there anything where you're calling me to step out in a new way? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your great love for us. We'll look forward to what you're going to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.